Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. After the massacre in Uvalde, Texas, reporter Ari Sen got a look at the Instagram account belonging to the gunman before Meta took it down. What we saw on the Instagram was lots of photos of the shooter, very dramatic sort of moody photos. Ari is a computational journalist for the Dallas Morning News. And lots of photos of like AR-15 style rifles and uh, weapons. Do you know if, if anyone at the school saw them? I don't know that. And that's a big outstanding question for us, whether these posts were identified to the school in any way. It's the kind of question that comes up with grim hindsight after a shooting like this. Were there signs? Did we miss them? And could we have caught this? Since the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, an entire industry has sprung up claiming that it has the answer software that scans social media for threats. From your reporting, I learned that the Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District purchased a social media monitoring service designed to to flag threats a few years ago. Are you able to know if it flagged anything in this case? We aren't able to know that until we get records back from the school district, which I've asked for. And even then, they may not be able to to tell us whether this particular post was flagged. But I think in this particular instance, it's very unlikely. Right now, Ari says, it's hard to know if the software, called Social Sentinel, was active in Uvalde at the time of the shooting. The school hasn't answered that question yet. But Ari, who has reported extensively on social media surveillance, is skeptical that the posts he saw would have been caught. I've looked at the alerts flagged by this company, Social Sentinel, And basically all of them appear to be tweets. And when we do see the occasional Facebook post or image, it's usually a comment left on the school's Facebook page or a photo posted to the school's own Instagram account or a comment on a photo from the school's own Instagram account. So why then are schools spending millions of dollars on this software? And why does the industry claim it helps protect students? Today on the show, what threat surveillance software promises and how it falls short. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. 
Long before the shooting in Uvalde, Ari went looking for school systems in Texas that use social media monitoring software. He found more than 200, from tiny districts to some of the state's largest systems. And many used a service called Social Sentinel. Social Sentinel is a social media monitoring technology. It's used by dozens of colleges and hundreds of school districts um, all around the country. What they claim to do is to scan billions of social media posts to identify threats of potential violence or self-harm. They claim to use really sophisticated AI to do that. Now, some of the reporting that I've done suggests that these models may not be very sophisticated or that this might be a really hard problem to solve, even if the models are very sophisticated and they might not be doing a very good job at identifying what is a true threat and what is not a true threat. Social Sentinel is just one of several companies that school districts contract with to look for threats. Last year on the show, we reported on GoGuardian, which logs student keystrokes on school Chromebooks. Each of these services, Ari says, has its own particular focus. Last year, I wrote about four of these services. Social Sentinel was one of them, but I also wrote about Gaggle, GoGuardian, and Securely. Social Sentinel, up until recently, focused exclusively on social media. It appears that they might have also moved into email monitoring as well. Gaggle and Securely have been doing the email monitoring thing for a while. And I should say that's not just email, that's the entire G suite of services. So that's uh, Google Hangouts, Google Docs, Gmail, all of those, uh, Google Classroom, which is really big in education. Anything that a student types into one of those uh, services from Google, it would get flagged if it was potentially threatening to one of these companies. And then you have services like GoGuardian, which are even more invasive. They'll load them up on a student's Chromebook, uh, and the teacher can see exactly what the student is viewing in real time from their computer, and it logs every keystroke that the student makes. You can even track these sort of devices. So if a device, in theory, went missing, you could track the student down by using the device. So there is a whole spectrum of school surveillance technologies, and they're very prolific, and there are more and more coming online every day. Did they arise because of school shootings, or were there sort of different, I guess, genesis stories for each one? It's a bit complicated. I think if you look at Social Sentinel specifically, Social Sentinel was started in the early 2010s, uh, and that sort of evolves into what it is today in like 2014, 2015. And one of the things you hear the founders talking about a lot is the Virginia Tech shooting. One of the things I've heard from a lot of school districts and a lot of colleges who have been considering this service or have used this service, I'd say we were really concerned about a school shooting happening on our campus. So it seems like specifically for the social media monitoring services, school shootings was a big impetus for them. But what Ari found was that several school districts that bought this software, spending between $1 and $2 per student, weren't getting all that much for their money. Most of the school districts that we talked to that had used Social Sentinel did not find the service to be useful. How, how many are we talking about there? I contacted every school that we could find that had used Social Sentinel and the three other social media monitoring services that we studied. 
In in the state of Texas? In the state of Texas, that's right. Wow. Um, so over 200 school districts had used one of these four services uh, since 2015. So I contacted all you know 200 plus of these school districts. Uh, most of them did not respond to my questions, but there were a handful, you know, maybe five or six who did actually respond. And I would say four or five of those said that we canceled the service after a year, we didn't find it to be useful, or we found something, you know, anonymous reporting tool, a team of humans to monitor this stuff. We found that to be as good or better than the Social Sentinel service. And one thing that I've heard a lot, not only from school districts, but from colleges, is that 90, 99% of the stuff that they were getting from the Social Sentinel service was false alerts. You know, I've seen stuff like song lyrics, Bible verses, obvious jokes, hyperbole. If you just think about the way that people talk on social media, it's a lot of sarcasm, it's a lot of irony, it's a lot of hyperbole. And that can be really difficult for machine learning models to catch in general, and particularly the less sophisticated stuff. Do you have any examples of posts that got flagged where you think like, oh, come on, that's that's someone, you know, tweeting lyrics? There is a college in Florida that I was able to get some flagged tweets from. And somebody tweeted the lyrics to the 2010 B.O.B. song, Airplanes. I think it picked up on the, the phrase shooting stars. Obviously, we've seen people tweeting about their favorite characters on TV shows. If X character doesn't get together with Y character, I'm literally going to die. You know, like things like that. There's a really funny tweet from one of these Florida colleges about Hamburger Helper and how Hamburger Helper needs to accept that it needs help. And they thought that was like a, a mental health problem? Uh, I mean, evidently, I you know, like I said, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to sort of inspect these uh, machine learning models. We don't know for sure what exactly is going on behind the scenes there, but I, I am able to look at some of the things that they have flagged and they don't seem to be threatening at all. And what we've heard anecdotally from schools and colleges is like, yeah, most of what we are getting is just not actionable. Is the algorithm searching for keywords? Does it does it look for, you know, shoot, kill, stab? If you looked at Social Sentinels, the, the way they talked about the service early on, it very much sounds like a keyword-based service. They talk about this uh, language of harm, how they have thousands of terms in their uh, their language of harm that they're able to flag to school districts. The company now says that they have very sophisticated machine learning models. They have these eight different uh, machine learning models, which are able to classify uh, text appropriately. It's also unclear exactly how these models work because the companies treat their algorithms as proprietary. They also say it would defeat the purpose of their work to disclose too much. We don't know what sorts of training data they have to go into the models, whether that training data has been audited for racial bias. All of that stuff is opaque to us. Uh, and it really raises questions about if schools are going to use this for such a serious and important purpose. Should there be some transparency about the models, the training data, uh, and how effective they are? Moreover, machine learning models often struggle with slang and the way kids talk. That can mean posts from students of color are disproportionately flagged by the algorithms. 
there was a really interesting paper by some UMass Amherst researchers a couple years ago where they took African-American vernacular English and they plugged it into language identification machine learning models. And so obviously what it should spit out is that this is English, right? In actuality, one of these models flagged that language as Dutch with 99% confidence. So, you know, these models do poorly on non-anglicized English text in general, and, you know, sort of may exhibit sort of the biases from the training data, which they were trained on. And if you look at like Social Sentinel's claims, for example, on their website, they say that we don't perpetuate any biases. And the experts that I've talked to have said that's very difficult to do if the sort of underlying models you're using behind the scenes uh, have these sort of biases built in. When we come back, if schools know this software doesn't really work, why are they buying it? Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. While Social Sentinel claims it covers almost all social media, Ari's reporting and work from BuzzFeed News suggests it mostly just monitors Twitter. There's also the question of whether these services can even keep up with how students use social media as they jump from platform to platform. Obviously, you have the problem with young people hopping between different services. The big thing now is like TikTok, for example, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it was Facebook. People hop from Facebook to Instagram to Snapchat to TikTok. And it's hard for sort of these platforms to keep up. And then you also have the ways in which language changes uh, sort of naturally over time. And then obviously, as we were just talking about, language differs very widely across groups and geographies, right? The way people talk in California is not the same way that people talk in North Carolina. So it's very difficult for these models to keep up with all the sort of linguistic variation and to keep up with all the different new platforms that are coming out. Yeah, I saw that the Uvalde shooter was using a service called Ubo, which I suspect these companies are not monitoring. Yeah, I hadn't even heard of Ubo. Uh, Me neither. One of the things I've seen, you know, in my reporting on Social Sentinel is that police chiefs, um, you know, going back to 2015, were constantly bugging Social Sentinel. You know, can you add this platform? Can you add this platform? And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. But it's very, very difficult to keep up with sort of the the fast-paced nature of um, how young people are acting online. Listening to you, there seems to be a pretty substantial body of evidence that these services are are largely ineffective. If that's a fair assessment, and I'd like to know if you think it is a fair assessment, um, why are they still being touted as a solution? We haven't really been able to identify a clear case of this service really working. We have heard some anecdotes about maybe some of the other services preventing 
kids from maybe harming themselves. We did hear from one school district last year that had used uh, gaggle and said they were able to prevent students from harming themselves. And that's a huge win. It is. But I think the question we have to ask is, uh, is it worth the privacy invasion? And I think that's that's sort of an open question. And one of the things I found last year is that most of the time, students and parents you know, weren't told at all that these services were in place and had no way to opt in or opt out. So I think what needs to happen is a more open conversation about this is the service that we're using. This is why we're using it. And this is the things that it looks for. And then, you know, allow parents to really make an informed choice about whether it's right for their children and just to have an open dialogue and discussion among the public about whether that invasiveness is worth the potential benefits. You know, part of me, after reading your reporting, I've just been wondering, like, if these schools and universities are under such pressure to to do something, but, you know, the debate around guns is, is either a, a non-starter where they are or, or completely out of their hands. And so this feels like a, a read they can grasp. We're obviously having a larger political conversation about uh, what gun restrictions we, we do and we don't want. But I think for schools, they're desperate to do something to protect their kids, whether that's, you know, school safety drills, monitoring services like the ones we've been talking about here, whether it's physical security like, uh, you know, metal detectors or other sorts of physical security measures. But I think one of the things that the Uvalde shooting shows us is that even school districts that have all of those things in, in place and have all of the training and all the officers, uh, these things can fail and do fail. So there needs to be sort of uh, a different conversation that's happening about what measures are effective and you know, whether new approaches are needed to tackle this problem. These kinds of programs ingest a tremendous amount of information and data. And indeed, to, to work best, they need to do that. And it does make me wonder what other reasons a school or a school district or a university might want to have this information or or might utilize this information. As we've been talking about here, in a lot of cases, these services aren't very effective in preventing shootings or suicides. So the question is, what are they using it for? And why would they keep using a service if it's not effective? And some of the things that I've been seeing in my reporting, particularly at the college level, is that uh, colleges are uh, adopting these services to monitor protests and activism. And obviously, that's you know very chilling. In 2016, there was a company called Geophedia uh, that got caught doing this by the ACLU. Got caught doing what? Got caught monitoring Black Lives Matter protesters. Mm. Uh, so they were, Geophedia was sold to uh, police departments, and then the police departments would use the service to monitor Black Lives Matter protesters uh, and activists. And the ACLU was able to uncover the use of this service by these departments in this way. And shortly afterwards, uh, Geophedia got cut off by uh, many of the major social platforms and uh, laid off half of their staff. But Geophedia is not the only player out there, obviously. And my reporting has suggested that 
these other services, particularly Social Sentinel uh, at the college level, may be used to monitor protests and activism. What did the school say when you asked them about this? I have contacted every college that uh, we know of that's used Social Sentinel uh, and asked about this question specifically. A lot of them don't want to talk about this. We haven't really heard a sort of full-throated defense of we're monitoring this protest to keep students safe. A lot of them are very tight-lipped, so we have to rely on documents and sort of whistleblowers uh, inside of the company to give us information. And does the company say, yeah, we know we know our stuff is being used to monitor protesters? The company fervently denies any ability or use of the service to monitor protesters in any way. And they have since the beginning. But I think if you look at some of the reporting that's been done by myself and others, that claim is, is very dubious. It's worth remembering that most of these services are being paid for with public money. An investigation by BuzzFeed News examined contracts from 130 schools and found that they collectively spent $2.5 million on social media monitoring over five years. If you are listening to this and and you're a parent or a a teenager or a college student, what are the kinds of questions you think you should be asking your educators, your administration about these services? Well, first of all, I think it's just important to know whether the service is in place or not. There's not a lot of knowledge, uh, as I said, that these services are being used. For example, when I was reporting on uh, these four social media monitoring companies last year, I discovered that my high school had used Gaggle, one of the monitoring services. I knew from previous reporting that my undergraduate institution, UNC Chapel Hill, used Social Sentinel. I think, first of all, we should just ask the campus police department, you know, the school administrators, okay, what service are you using? What does it monitor for and why you're using it? I think those are just the basic questions that we have to ask. And then the next questions are, is it effective? Is it doing what it's set out to do, what they claimed it could do when they were marketing the service to you? And if it's not, then I think people really have to raise questions about why are we still using this thing if it doesn't work for the thing that they said it works for? Ari Sen, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Ari Sen is a computational journalist for the Dallas Morning News. And we reached out to Social Sentinel for comment on this story and did not hear back as of recording time. All right, that is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch, Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next, and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership with Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And we will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.